Hey, Bridgetown Church, last week we kicked off our spring practice on simplicity. If you were not here, I would invite you to go back and listen to part one as it's the baseline for our entire practice. For part two, please turn in your Bibles right now to Luke chapter 12 and give me a few minutes to set up our text. Life is complex. And not to sound cynical, but anyone who tells you otherwise is likely trying to sell you something. The human brain was hardwired by God at a neurobiological level to synthesize vast amounts of electrical impulses and simplify it all down to a focal point. Now, some of us are better at this than others. Monks are the best, ninja level. But after the monks, the people I know who best optimize this latent human capacity are advertisers. Years ago, I got to sit in on a branding meeting with some high-level ad agency execs and watch them coax the leaders of an organization to articulate in one line what their organization was all about. And in all honesty, it was pure genius. And branding is a great strategy. If you run a business and your goal is to sell a product or a service, it's great. But I am not a brand, and neither are you. We are human beings, and human nature is complex, and it's full of paradox and ambiguity and tension and open-ended questions. So it would be really easy to mistake the practice of simplicity as just another Western capitalistic attempt to truncate the mystery of the human condition, but it's not. The opposite of simplicity isn't complexity, it's superficiality. It's a life that is trivial, vain, ephemeral. The choice is not between a simple life and a complex one, but between a deep life and a shallow one, or a life of focus and a life of distraction. And few people, if we are honest, ever achieve a simple life. One of the precious few was the 20th century Quaker intellectual Thomas Kelly, and he does a great job of capturing that nagging fear that so many of us live with in the Western world modern world. Quote, we feel honestly the pull of many obligations, and we try to fulfill them all, but we are unhappy, uneasy, strained, oppressed, and fearful we shall be shallow. We have hints that there is a way of life vastly richer and deeper than all this hurried existence, a life of unhurried serenity and peace and power. If only we could slip over into that center. We have seen and known some people who seem to have found this deep center of living where the fretful calls of life are integrated, where no as well as yes can be said with confidence. That's from his book, A Testament of Devotion, which in all of church history is in my top two or three devotional reads. And at the end, he has this beautiful chapter entitled The Simplification of Life. But notice Kelly's language of the center with a capital C. I've been learning a lot over the last year about an idea from the therapy world called internal family systems therapy. The gist is that one way to think about yourself is as a personality. You are a type three on the Enneagram or an ESFP or on the Myers-Briggs or a DC on the DISC test or whatever your paradigm is. And that's great. The problem is it does not capture the complexity of the human condition. There are more than nine personality types or 16 or 12 or whatever your rubric is. 
is. And one high-level psychologist said to me recently, after an in-depth training on bioenergetics, which is this fascinating new body-based differential psychology, that's a whole other story. But at the end of the training, he said to me, John Mark, you're not that. You're not only that. You're not even that. So another way to think about yourself is not as a personality, but as a family of sub-personalities. Now, as weird as that might sound, I find it more, far more in line with biblical theology, where God on the first page of the Bible is three in one, meaning God is relational to the core. Let us make mankind in our image. And we are made in the image of God, meaning we are relational to the core. As our favorite resident theologian, Dr. Gary Bashir has put it, God is a family who makes family. In the words of the psychologist and spiritual director, David Benner, what we call I is really a family of many part selves. For example, I know a ton of you are into the Enneagram. Some of you way too much. God bless you. And under that theory, there are nine basic personality types. And the experts argue that you have all nine in you. But one, for most people, is dominant. But they also argue that you have a number you go to under stress and another that you integrate to health in. And depending on who you read, you also have a wing or a second wing as you age. Now, whatever you think of the Enneagram, whether you love it or hate it, either way, that's just an attempt to name the felt experience of sub-personalities. And the problem, and just bear with me if this sounds a little kooky to you, the problem is our subpersonalities all have their own agenda, and the soul is often a kind of Darwinian survival of the fittest battleground. Richard Foster does a great job of naming the inner tug of war that a lot of us feel. Within all of us is a whole conglomerate of selves, and each of these selves are rugged individualists. Each one screams to protect his or her vested interests. If a decision is made to spend a relaxed evening listening to Chopin, the business self and the civic self rise up in protest at the loss of precious time. The energetic self paces back and forth, impatient and frustrated. The religious self reminds us of the lost opportunities for study or evangelistic contact. No wonder we overcommit our schedules and, listen to his line, live lives of frantic faithfulness. Man, I don't know about you. Does that ring true for you? It really does for me. So internal family systems therapy is all about how do we integrate our sub-personalities around a center? Um, a great example of it is actually the movie Inside Out, which was made, I think, by a Christian. And uh, it's a little weird. It's the one Pixar movie my kids don't love. I think it is brilliant. There's literally a cockpit, the center of the human person, five emotions that are personified. That is an attempt. It's all about how we integrate our sub-personalities which is really the job of the soul and of soul formation. A lot of people think of the soul as the wispy kind of invisible part of you that when you die goes up to heaven in the cartoon bubble. That view of the soul comes from Plato and Looney Tunes, not at all from the Bible. In biblical theology, the soul is your whole person from your heart up into your mind and your central nervous system and out through your body. In biblical theology, for example, you don't have a body. You are a body, meaning it's a part of who you are. Resurrection of the dead. It's a core tenant of the Christian 
Christian faith. That is God's yes to your body, not just now, but for forever. This is key because if we misunderstand what the soul is, we misunderstand how to take care of it and what it means for Jesus to save it. Remember, and I know I say this a lot, but the Greek word that we translate save in the New Testament is soteria. It's where we get the theological category of soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation. And it's the same word that in the NIV and most English translations is translated as heal. So when you're reading through the Gospels and you read that Jesus saved somebody, and then a paragraph later you read that Jesus healed somebody, you're reading the exact same Greek word. Even the English word of salvation, the etymology of that is from the Latin word salve, as in an ointment that you put on for the healing of a wound. And that's what it is. Salvation isn't about the wispy cartoon part of you floating up to heaven when you die. It's about the healing and the health of your soul now and into eternity, your whole person, as you come back into union with the Trinitarian community of God through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the Spirit into the temple of your body to make you a son or a daughter of God the Father. That, my friends, is a biblical theology of the soul. Now, in a secular frame, you know, psychologists who attempt to name healing and other kinds of language, call it integration. I actually really like that language. When we're not integrated, they would argue, around a center, we feel torn and tense and tired all of the time. But when we are integrated, we come to a focal point and we feel at peace with reality. Think of when we compliment somebody and say he or she has integrity. What we mean by that is they are the same on the outside as on the in, in public as in in private. They are the same all the way through. There's an inner equilibrium. That's the idea of the integration of the soul, of the whole person. The question is, what do we integrate around? In the secular world, and I say this in love, but I think in its futile attempt to self-save, would have us find that center by looking within ourselves through self-actualization, be that through reading a self-help book or listening to endless podcasts or kind of the quasi-pseudo-Hinduism that comes through us through popular yoga culture. And of course, there's great stuff in there. But when we do that, a lot of our experience is that we just end up even more lost and confused and torn off center, while others make millions off of our endless quest for the self. The way of Jesus would have us find that center by looking within, yes, but not to ourselves, instead to God to what Paul called Christ in us, the hope of glory. In Jesus' paradigm, the branch in the vine, where you're not even sure where does the branch end and the vine begin. It's to find that deep place within us where our spirit touches God's spirit, what Thomas Kelly and the Quakers called the holy center what John Wesley called the central point of bliss, what the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard called purity of heart. In his famous essay, Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing, he said, and he's, again, one of the most brilliant minds of the last century, that the main problem in the human condition is that we will or we desire 
too many things and our desires contradict each other. If you're in the grocery store and you know, cake on one side and Chris Hemsworth abs routine on the other, contradict each other and compete at a far more serious level for our soul. And as a result, we disintegrate. In David's line in you know, Psalm 86, give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. My, I love that because my heart is so often divided. I mean, I want God. I genuine, honest, I want God. But I also want money and more stuff and status and luxury and easy, quick pleasure. And my desires often tear my soul apart and wreak havoc on my peace. I feel fragmented and fractured, and I know that I'm not alone. To reintegrate, to come back to the holy center, we must come to the place where, in Kierkegaard's language, we will one thing. What he said was the good, which he defined as God. It's a fascinating way to think about purity as the will or the desire for the good, for God above all else. And we come to purity of heart, he said in that essay, through the practice of simplicity. Last week, we used Richard Foster's definition of simplicity, an inward reality of single-hearted focus upon God and his kingdom, which results in an outward lifestyle of modesty, openness, and unpretentiousness, and which disciplines our hunger for status, glamour, and luxury. Note an inward reality that results in an outward lifestyle in that order. Long before simplicity is about how many pairs of shoes are in your closet or how much clutter is on your kitchen windowsill, it's about what followers of Jesus who came before us called simplicity of heart, the aim of our inner fulcrum onto its center point in God. So here is the roadmap for our practice over the next month. On the docket for today is the practice of simplicity of heart. Then next week is simplicity of speech, which is a new idea for most of us. Can't wait. Then simplicity of apparel. Then simplicity of stuff. And then finally, simplicity of lifestyle. But note the order there. Simplicity starts in the heart and then moves out through the layers of the soul, kind of up out of the mouth, through the body to our clothing and our closet and our home and our schedule and our social relationships. But the origin point is the heart. In the words of the Hebrew wisdom literature, what we call Proverbs, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. You see, it's not enough to just simplify our closet, our home, or even our schedule. We have to simplify around something. As the saying goes, nature abhors a vacuum. If we create space in our home and our budget and our schedule, something or someone will rush in to fill that void. Be that Jesus or our career or our children or even our neurosis. I think of the famous photo here of Steve Jobs listening to music in his living room in the Bay Area in 1982. Jobs, of course, was the world's most famous 
minimalist for many years, a multi-billionaire who'd get up in the morning and wear the exact same outfit every single day, black turtleneck, jeans, New Balance tennis shoes, to give his mind and his heart and his body just more space to pursue his vision of life. It's no surprise that he gave us the Apple design ethos. Here he is sitting in his living room with nothing but a lamp, a stereo, and a mat. But notice, there's no mess at all, right? No clutter. It's also no family. There's no people, no children running around, no relationships. He refused to admit he even had a daughter until she was in college, which is at best denial. His biography, I I don't know if you've read it, I could not put it down, but it is a tragic read of one broken relationship after the other. And Isaacson, his biographer, is one of the best we have. And his commentary on this iconic picture claims that the reason the living room was empty wasn't because he was a minimalist or he was at peace. It was because he was an obsessive compulsive perfectionist with a torn soul who could not decide on the perfect furniture layout. For Jobs, his center was not God or relationships or love. It was, in his own words, to change the world through technology or to, quote, make a dent in the universe. And he did. You are likely, I'm sure a huge percentage of you, are watching or looking at me right now on a device that at some point started off in his brain. His life was anything but superficial, right? It made a deep mark. But in Jesus' language, it's, it's eerie, but it's hard not to read his story and think, man, there is a man who lost his soul. All that to say, what you center your heart on will define who you do or do not become for better or for worse. On that note, now we're ready for the Gospel of Luke. Take a look at what Jesus has to say about what it is that we are to center on, which is in or at the end of his in-depth teachings in Luke's Gospel on money. We left off last week in verse 21. Let's pick it up in verse 22. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Life's more than food. The body is way more than clothes. Notice the word then and the word therefore. In the English translation, there's a paragraph break and a heading title as if verse 22 is a new teaching. It's not. It is a continuation of the teaching that we read last week on money and stuff and, quote, how life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. That's just not what life is about. Therefore, Jesus says, in light of the reality that really what life is not about is excess stuff, don't worry. Don't give your mental energy to that. Notice how Jesus ties worry to money or said another way, anxiety to attachments. In Jesus' paradigm, and this is such an insight into the human condition, we fret and obsess over and ruminate on whatever it is that is ultimate in our heart's desire, be that money, be that our career, be that what other people think of us, be that people-pleasing, be that church, whatever, be that Jesus. Whatever it is that is ultimate will come to dominate your heart. If and when we make money or materialism not a gift that we enjoy and we share with those in need, but rather something that we need in order to feel happy and okay, we doom our own soul to an endless cycle of anxiety because anything other than Jesus, even people, even relationships, family and friends, anything other than Jesus can and often is 
taken away by a global pandemic, by a recession, by a relationship fracture. Anything other than Jesus can and often is taken away. We doom our soul to anxiety. But Jesus goes on to show you and I another way. Consider, that can be translated, think about, muse on the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn or 401k. Yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than birds? This is Jesus' mindset of, we live in a world of abundance, not of scarcity. God is our provider. You're not hungry. You're okay. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life, or that can be translated a single foot to your height? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you not worry about the rest? I love Jesus' sense of humor. Since you can't make yourself taller, why is it that you worry? You're not in control. Let go. Consider, 27, how the wild flowers grow. So many wildflowers right now in our city. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these in the simple pleasures. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? Or in Greek, that's one word. It's Jesus' favorite nickname for his disciples, you little faith, say gentle chide. And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Heart in biblical theology is the center of the human person. It is the tripart inner architecture of your one thinking and two feeling and three desire. Put another way, it's what you think about, what you feel, and what you want. Don't set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. Let it go. For the pagan world, not a unkind word in his day, runs after all such things. That's what the whole world is about. And your father, he knows that you need them. He knows you need food and clothing and shelter and all of that. Seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. Or that can be translated, seek first his kingdom or make the top priority in your heart his kingdom. The word seek is zeteo in Greek, and it means to go out and look for something until you find it. But it also has this idea of passion. Zeteo is related to the English word zeal. It's lost in the NIV, but it's the same word Jesus used in the previous sentence that is translated runs after, meaning the pagan world runs after food and materialism and status and luxury. We are to run after God and the kingdom. 32. Do not be afraid, little flock. Here's Jesus, the pastor. For your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. God is a self-giving, generous, loving father. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Join in your father's self-giving flow of generous love. Provide purses or bank accounts for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fade. No global recession, no pandemic, not employment, nothing can take it away. No thief comes near, no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is a key idea in Jesus' biblical theology of money, that where you invest your resources, your time, yes, I'm sorry, your money, but also your time and your energy and your attention, we live in the attention economy, what you think about, will come to take over your heart and either entrap it in greed or set it free in love. Now, what does it mean to seek first the kingdom of God? 
It means to invest the resources of our life into God and what he is doing in the world. Another way to say that is to live for God's presence and his pleasure. Short word on each. First off, it's to live for God's presence. And remember, God's presence isn't you know, like an energy force that you access like in Star Wars. In Jesus' teaching, the spirit is a he, not an it. Not meaning the spirit is a guy, but that the spirit is a person, a relational being that we relate to and conversate with. In one of Jesus' most famous teachings, he said that we are to, quote, abide in the vine. The word abide is meno in Greek, and it can be translated to dwell. It means to make your home in God and let God make his home in you. It's what Brother Lawrence later called the practice of the presence of God. It's what Tozer called constant conscious communion. Frank Laubach, in his book, Letters by a Modern Mystic, which is another one of my favorite devotional reads. It's, you know, one of the few books that I keep next to my bed on my side table there all year long. He writes about what he calls his game with minutes, which was his playful attempt to keep God set before his mind for as many minutes as possible per hour. At first, when I read his journal, I was confused by the notation at the top of each entry where it said, you know, conscious 80% or conscious 15% or conscious 30%. And then I realized he was keeping track of what percentage of the day he was conscious of God's presence. That level of dedication to God's presence is, I think, what Jesus had in mind when he said, seek first the kingdom. And the only way to get to that level of conscious awareness of and connection to God's presence is to obliterate any and all divide between the sacred and the secular. Mowing the lawn and brushing your teeth and checking your email must become just as holy as reading scripture or prayer or church. As long as we limit prayer to overt spiritual activity, which has a place, we, like church, our morning quiet time, whatever it is, God will always stay on the margin of our life and not at the center. Because just by, do the math, by the slice of the pie chart, most of our time, no matter how spiritual you are, even if you're a pastor or whatever, most of our time is spent sleeping and cooking and cleaning and working and dropping the kids off for piano lessons. Our life must become prayer. As Susanna Wesley, the mother of John and Charles Wesley, and a spiritual giant and brilliant mind in her own right, as she once said, help me, Lord, to remember that religion is not to be confined to the church or the closet, but that everywhere I am in thy presence. There's nowhere God is not. Everywhere we go, we are in God. But second, after we live for God's presence, with that, we are to live for God's pleasure. Brother Lawrence and all of the spiritual masters of the way of Jesus argue that there is an insoluble link between our experience of God's presence and our level of surrender to his pleasure or his will. As Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. The paradox of the kingdom of God is that self-fulfillment is found in self-denial, that as we give all we are, we receive all he is, that as we yield to his pleasure and will and love, 
we discover the very joy that we crave. Jesus himself is not asking you to do anything that he's not already doing. He said, quote, I always do what pleases him. Paul, that master apprentice of Jesus, said, we make it our aim to please him. Now, what does simplicity of heart have to do with how much stuff we own before we wrap up? Or whether we buy a new lawnmower this summer or, you know, pick up that extra pair of chinos. Well, desire of the heart, as crucial as it is, is not enough. We must move from desire to discipline. We must and we can take easy, doable, tangible steps toward the kingdom of God in our day-to-day lives. We do this through the practices or the spiritual disciplines, which move an idea from our heart out through our body into the world. And near the top of the list of practices is simplicity, which prior to very recent church history was not like a side practice for the really radical. It was central to the way of Jesus. And there is no one-size-fits-all version of simplicity. Wealth is relative, plus we all have our own personality, a different stage of life, different family, different living situation. So there's no standardized test for whether or not you live a simple life with Jesus. But a truth that cuts across the socioeconomic strata and really across history is that there is a reciprocal relationship between how much stuff we own and how close or far away we are from our holy center. Here are three reasons that it's so easy for wealth, and by that I just mean too much extra stuff, to throw us off our holy center. Number one, Too much stuff is a distraction to our mind. Experts in simplicity and minimalism write a lot about clutter, not just as in too many knickknacks on our bookshelf, but as in too many distractions in our life. The blogger duo, The Minimalists, define clutter as anything that does not add value to your life. Peter Walsh as anything that interferes with the life you could be living. Leo Babata from Guam in his little book writes that clutter is a visual sign of procrastination and carries with it just as much anxiety. They are all perceptive enough to catch what a lot of us miss, that physical clutter in our home or office is often a kind of mental clutter as well, which sabotages our capacity to focus on what really matters, which for us is Jesus and the kingdom. It's really hard for your brain to come back to conscious awareness of God all through the day when it's receiving electrical impulses nonstop from tripping over toys and searching for that lost t-shirt in the laundry room. Secondly, too much stuff is a drain on our time. Time is money, as the saying goes. More than a little truth in that. The father of minimalism in the kind of recent secular variety of it isn't Jesus, it's Henry David Thoreau. As part of my research for my last book, I went and read On Walden Pond, which is all about, you know, his two-year experiment of living on Ralph Waldo Emerson's property on his pond with just kind of the bare essentials of life. His famous line is, I went into the woods because I wished to live deliberately 
to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach and not when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. I wanted to live deep and suck all of the marrow of life, to live so sturdily and Spartan-like as to put to rout all that was not life. Simplicity, simplicity, simplicity. I say, let your affairs be two or three and not a hundred or a thousand. Why should we live with such hurry and waste of life? What a great line. But I did not realize until I read his book that his famous experiment was a part of what he and Emerson called the New Economics, which was an attempt by early American intellectuals to measure the true cost of things, not just the cost in money, but also the cost in time and mental output. Think about it. Um, for Here's an easy example. I used to ride motorcycles, but when I got into simplicity, that's one of the things that I gave away. Now, one of the reasons because, was because my theological position started to change. I was no longer a Calvinist, and I was a father with three little kids and thought it's not a good idea to risk my life, at least until they are through college or whatever. But the other reason is because I started to calculate the true cost. The bike itself, at least mine, wasn't that expensive. But then there was money for gas and maintenance and a charger for the winter. Kevin Kelly of Wired Magazine claims that for every dollar you spend on an item, you can expect to spend another dollar in repairs and maintenance over its lifetime. So the motorcycle that you think costs two or three grand actually costs more like six grand. But I also had to clean it and store it, not to mention ride it. So there's all the time there. And at the end of the day, it was great, but the true, for me, in the cost-benefit analysis, it wasn't worth it to me. Now, I'm not saying to all of you motorheads that you need to sell your bike. What I'm saying is that we all need to take an honest look at how excess stuff is an engine to drive us to hurry and siphon our time. I read a study last week that said over a lifetime, the average American spends 153 days searching for lost items. The top of the list was sunglasses followed by car keys. Finally, number three, too much stuff is a deception to our heart. Jesus, in his parable of the four soils, gave a potent warning about, quote, the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and desires for other things, which come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Wealth is deceitful because it promises what it cannot give, security and satisfaction. This is why, especially in the West, so many people look to money and material things with a religious-like faith that it will make them happy. The French sociologist Jean Baudrillard has made the point that in the Western world, materialism has become the new, quote, dominant system of meaning. He argues that atheism hasn't replaced Christianity. Shopping has. Shopping is now the number one leisure activity in America, a place that was once reserved for religion. Amazon.com is the new temple. The bank statement is the new altar. Instagram influencers are the new priests and priestesses. And money is the new God. There is a reason that the only only God, the only other God that Jesus ever called out by name was mammon. He saw early on the human heart's bent to search for happiness in things which really are just trying to fill an inner void, that hunger and ache for God himself. 
This is why for the follower of Jesus, the question is not, how can I get more? More clothing, more money, more square footage. The question is, how can I simplify and live with less? To that end, our practice for the week ahead is all up at practicingtheway.org simplicity. We said that each teaching would follow a basic flow of one, what Jesus and the writers of scripture said about materialism, followed by two, the practice of simplicity down through church history, followed by three, some best practices from the minimalism movement. One of the things that the minimalist writers all point out is that before you can get very far on your minimalism or simplicity journey, you have to figure out what your vision and values for life are. Put another way, before you can say no to that kayak you don't use very often or how many potted plants you have in your kitchen, first you have to figure out what it is that you want to say yes to. So our practice for the week is just to identify what your most important values are. A lot of our values are the same for us as followers of Jesus, to be with him, to become like him, to do what he did. But a lot of them are very different. As Paul writes, we each have our own gift. You might have a really high value for hospitality and for home cooking, to welcome people into your home or apartment. Or for you, it might be leadership development or mentorship of young people or young married couples, or for you, it might be the gift of prophecy, or it might be your work, or the life of your mind as a teacher or a writer, or it might be your creative arts. It could be any number of things. The goal is to identify what you really want to make space for so you can decide what to clear out. Then you can ask, does this aid me in my life vision and pursuit of life in the kingdom, or does it sabotage and hinder? Is it just another red herring? And with COVID-19, there has never been a better time, in my life at least, to reevaluate not just our closet or our garage or our storage unit, but our entire life. As we come back slowly but surely, I say that in faith, in the weeks to come, so many people I know are saying, and I, as a pastor, I love to hear it. I'm hearing people say, I'm not going back to the way it was not to that level of hurry and digital distraction and exhaustion and overcommitment. I'm not doing that. There has never been a better time, and this opportunity will not last that long, to simplify our life. To end, you know, this might sound like a lot of hassle. As the Mennonite Doris Jansen put it, the trouble with simple living is that though it can be joyful, rich, and creative, it isn't simple. But on the other side of simplicity is a whole new way of life. Jesus put simplicity on display in a more compelling way than anyone else I know. And if you don't believe me, go read the four gospels. Joshua Becker called Jesus the original minimalist. I like that. It comes as no surprise that the intellectual T.S. Eliot called Christianity, quote, a condition of complete simplicity. God has come in Christ to put the kingdom of God on full display and to invite us in to experience the healing and the salvation of our soul, of our whole person, as we reintegrate around the holy center of God through Jesus. That is the end. Simplicity is just the means. And we have to keep the kind of destination in mind as we travel the road. We have to keep the end set before our heart. 
Jesus' practice of simplicity was not a morose, duty-based kind of legalism. It came out of his acute self-awareness of his heart's deepest longing to live with the Father and at the Father's pleasure. And our practice of simplicity must come from that same place, deep inside a desire to live with Jesus in the kingdom now and forever. Mm -hmm. 